The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. In this world, we can be certain of nothing except death and taxes. Uh, Those, of course, are the oft-quoted words of Benjamin Franklin. But what does it mean to live with uncertainty, especially when recent events have escalated the unpredictable in our everyday lives to uh, unprecedented levels? How do our brains respond to an uncertain climate? And what help can we find in religion or in philosophy? Does the accelerating world of online news exacerbate uncertainty or help to control it? Well, these are some of the questions that are going to be considered by our panel at this evening's Behind the Headlines, the first of this academic year, which comes to you, as always, from the Trinity Long Room Hub, the flagship institute for the arts and humanities at Trinity College, Dublin. My name is Eve Patton, and I'm the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub. Uh, In normal times, of course, I'd be greeting our Behind the Headlines audience in Trinity itself. Instead, you're joining us online uh, from across Ireland uh, and the world. We have a very large audience on Zoom, uh, on our Facebook live stream, and also on our transatlantic platform, Irish Central. Greetings to you all. If you're joining us for the first time and wondering what it is that the Trinity Long Room Hub is, let me briefly explain that we are the center point for the world-leading research that goes on in the arts and humanities at Trinity. Uh, Currently celebrating its 10th year in existence, the Trinity Long Room Hub is really a community of scholars and researchers working in all kinds of innovative and interdisciplinary interdisciplinary research. Uh, This might be in literature or language or history or religion and philosophy, uh, the classics or the creative arts. What we want to do is to channel that research outwards to you, to the public, in our many public humanities discussions and events. Uh, And these include our very special Behind the Headlines series, which is supported by the John Pollard Foundation uh, and which brings the best of our arts and humanities research to bear on the many questions that lie behind the news. Well, uh, this evening, it's very important that we therefore hear from you. So the format is as usual that each of our four guests on the panel will speak for just nine minutes And that will leave us with plenty of time to open up questions from our audience. You can uh, be thinking about your questions as you listen to the speakers and you can submit them through the Q&A function on your screen. Uh, At the end of the session, we will get through as many of them as we can in the time available. Uh, You might want to say your name, say something about where you're from, perhaps in your question. Uh, if you're joining us on Facebook, uh, you'll see that you can put questions in the, comic, in the comments session and we'll gather up those as well. Uh, and if you're on Twitter, the handle is TLRHub uh, and the hashtag HubMatters, hashtag HubMatters. 
Um, we have four very distinguished speakers tonight, and I'm going to introduce them to you in the order that they will be speaking. Professor Siobhan Garrigan is the Loyola Chair of Theology and the Head of the School of Religion in Trinity. Uh, and she's going to be looking at how Christianity offers a wealth of resources on how to cope with uncertainty, as well as a, a few examples on how not to cope with it. Siobhan's research examines how theology and contemporary politics inform one another at a grassroots level. Um, and uh, in this context, she has written on sectarianism, racism, sexism, and homophobia. And she's currently writing on a, 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 his, a theology of home for a time of homelessness. Following Siobhan, we're going to hear from Professor Kenny Pierce, who is the Usher Assistant Professor in Berkeley Studies, and also the head of the Department of Philosophy at Trinity. Uh, and Kenny will ask how early modern traditions of philosophy approach uncertainty. He'll ask if making peace with uncertainty is essential for life in the modern world. Kenny is the author of Language and the Structure of Berkeley's World, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2017. He's also the co-author of a forthcoming book, Is There a God? A Debate, which uh, we are looking forward to, to be published uh, by Routledge. Our third speaker is Professor Mani Ramaswamy. Uh, and Mani is Professor of Neurogenetics and the Director of the Trinity Institute of Neurosciences. Um, he currently leads a Wellcome Trust funded program in Trinity to support connections between the arts and humanities and neuroscience. And this is an absolutely terrific and very dynamic collaboration. Manny is also a specialist in the mechanisms of memory. And this evening, he's going to examine uncertainty from the perspective of neuroscience, looking at our brain's ability to predict the future and how we can use uncertainty to our advantage. And finally, uh, we have Carmel Crimmins. And Carmel is the financial desk deputy editor with Reuters. And Reuters, of course, is the world's oldest global newswire service. I'm very pleased to welcome Carmel, in fact, to welcome her back to Trinity because she graduated from the college in political science and economics. And since then, Carmel has served in several high profile news roles, including being financial services editor for the Americas when she was based in New York. She was also at the heart of Reuters coverage of the Eurozone debt crisis. Uh, leading the reporting on Ireland's banking implosion in 2008, which of course we all remember fondly. Um, Carmel now oversees Reuters coverage of the business, markets and economies uh, across 197 news bureau. So I think she's very well placed to talk to us about the production of news during a pandemic and in a global climate of deep uncertainty. So, at that point, let me now turn to our first speaker, Siobhan Garrigan. Thanks very much, Eve. Well, in answer to your, um, to your question about resources, Christianity offers a, a wealth of resources for how to cope with uncertainty. Um, 
but it's important to note that it also offers a few for how not to cope with it. Tendencies to control, proscribe, or judge others are common human responses to the feelings of panic and vulnerability that uncertainty can arouse. But when imposed in a structured way by church authorities, these can inflict profound harm. Take, for example, the conversion therapy forced on LGBTQ people to try to make certain something as varied and wild as human sexuality. Or take the complicity of certain churches with global capitalist markets out of fear of the uncertainties perceived in more socialist models. Any religious system promising certainty is deluded. Much of the Christianity we see in the media is of this sort, power crazed, misogynistic, judgmental, and rightly lambasted for its tacit support for white supremacism, nationalism, and the destruction of the environment. But this is far from the whole story. Other Christian theologies have long taught that certainty is always an illusion, that the very nature of life is uncertainty. Indeed, for most of Christianity's history, while some of its authorities have been responding to uncertainty with control, many of its ritual practices have been shaping people's everyday lives in such ways that they can tolerate and even embrace uncertainty. So in the next few minutes, I'm going to look at the theology of some of these grassroots Christian practices. I've only got time to look at three, so we're going to consider contemplation of the cross, prayer, and acts of service. So I'd like to start by taking a look at these crosses behind me and taking them as a starting point. And if that's not very obvious, maybe Francesca, you'd be kind enough to put up the slide of it, because uh, the light has, is going here in the West. These crosses begin at the point of acknowledging that death faces us all. Uh, we, none of us know what it will be like, when it will come, or what might happen after it. It is the big uncertainty. There's a phrase that repeats in the Bible, you do not know the day or the hour. And although it appears in relation to ap apocalyptic uh, texts, it also refers to us at an individual and a community level. It's not just the end of time. It's also about our own uncertainty about our lives, our fragility. What we do know is that before death, there will be suffering, possibly and quite likely terrible suffering. And what contemplation of the cross encourages Christians to do is to face these as realities, to accept them, but also to remember the promise of resurrection. That's a Christian concept. That is the promise that love is greater than death, that love is eternal 
and has no care for constructs of time or space, that love will last and suffering and death won't. Practiced over time, this ritual of contemplation of the cross gives the Christian hope. It, this, it instills hope into the everyday thought process. Hope in the power of love, no matter how uncertain the situation. I love this little cross collection because it reminds me of how people in lots of different situations of suffering and in lots of different cultures have pictured the sufferings they face and also, and crucially, how they have imagined their way through them. Christian prayer also takes many forms. Some are gestural, others bodily, others verbal, others silent. The verbal ones can be laments, psalmody, petitions, anaphora, Eucharistic prayers, and so many more. What they have in common is that whatever their form, if they're repeated over time, they form dispositions within us. First, in our breathing. Research has shown that, for example, saying the rosary conditions breathing to such an extent that it regulates our cardiovascular and respiratory systems. Living with uncertainty is stressful. Breathing in the ways that prayer forms in us radically reduces stress and the negative mental and physical health effects it can have. Secondly, prayer connects people with entities other than themselves. Whether the prayer is directed to God, the divine, creation, love as the source of the universe or whatever, connecting to something outside of ourselves reminds us that we are not alone it restores our connections to nature and it prevents overly internalizing our worry. Third, prayer connects people with entities greater than oneself alone. Much like a higher power for those in 12-step recovery programs, prayer allows us to acknowledge that some problems are just not within our power to fix individually and this encourages daily habits of letting go. Letting go of the need to control others or of the felt need for certainty. Certainty that cannot be had. And what then about serving others? Well, end of life research in the West repeatedly finds that those who spent their life in service of others face death more easily. It's no accident that Christianity privileges doing things for others, giving one's life in order to find it, giving without expecting return or wanting reward, a very specific mode of giving. Self-discovery is therefore conceived as self-giving, self-sacrifice even. The stories of the saints are often designed to show how this might be done. Stories of tending the sick, protecting the vulnerable, teaching the young, standing up for those treated unjustly, protesting oppressive politics and, and so on. These stories habituate Christians to serving others not as a special thing to do, but as the standard thing to do, the baseline. It might seem very difficult if you're cocooning alone, 
to perform acts of care for others. But there is so much yet that can be done, praying for others, but also working as a volunteer on phone helplines, knitting or making other things to be used by others, writing to prisoners or phoning people who are lonely. In our current moment with COVID and Brexit and fascist leadership in the USA and impending global recession, it's the scale of uncertainty and our common awareness of it that is remarkable. Theologies that attempt to assert certainty or hope to return to a normal state of affairs are of no help. But by contrast, ritual practices such as the ones I've just mentioned cultivate dispositions in us that can make us resilient when uncertainty gets extra uncertain. They do this by making us breathe, hope, imagine, and connect. Connect to the natural world, to others, and to our own souls. Sinead Eve. Over back to you, Eve, or on to Kenny, maybe. Thank you. From my perspective as a historian of modern philosophy, the age of uncertainty might be said to begin with the rediscovery of ancient Greek skepticism in the Renaissance. The ancient Greek skeptics argued that knowledge was completely impossible for humans. They came up with these whole batteries of arguments aimed to show that every knowledge claim, however mundane it might be, in every case, an equally powerful argument, according to them, could be produced on the other side. Wherever there is evidence, there is counter evidence. In this kind of climate, uh, Rene Descartes did his work, and Descartes, of course, is traditionally regarded as the founder of modern Western philosophy. Descartes went searching for certainty. And it was in that context that he wrote what are perhaps the most famous words in Western philosophy, I think, therefore I am. This, he thought, was the certainty, the firm foundation that he could build on. But of course, even this proposition has been questioned, has been doubted, has been denied by philosophers. The denial of the existence of the self is a core tenet of Buddhism defended by Buddhist philosophers thousands of years before Descartes. But what Descartes seems to have been motiv motivated by was this fear of uncertainty that's very much still with us. That without some certain foundation, we feel that our lives are unstable and that we don't know where to go. And so Descartes wanted to build this structure on some firm foundation, a foundation of certainty. However, there were philosophers, even in the 17th century, alongside Descartes, who argued that this was a mistake, that these kinds of philosophies and ideologies that try to build themselves on certainty are destructive and don't give us the kind of advice, the kind of approach that we need to learn about the world and to live in the world. 
And the key problem with the kind of approach that Descartes advocates, and that was advocated by, before him by many philosophers in the tradition who thought that knowledge required certainty, the key problem is that it leads people to think they've achieved certainty when they haven't. And so I want to mention from the 17th century two other kind of ideas, places where philosophers advocated for the embrace of uncertainty in ways that I think are very much at the foundation of our modern world. The first of these is the philosopher scientists of the Royal Society of London. These folks, uh, including Robert Hooke, Robert Boyle, and later Isaac Newton, building on this tradition, they wanted to follow a, uh, a method described, advocated by Francis Bacon of experimental science, of learning from experiment and favoring this over armchair theorizing. But there was always a problem with this, a problem that had already been identified by ancient philosophers. And this is that things we experience by our senses such as the results of our experiments, can never give us certainty. It's always possible that we made a measurement error. It's always possible that we did the experiment 100 times, and if we did it 101 times, it would come out differently next. It's always possible that we're hallucinating or that we're dreaming. And so the senses can never give us that type of certainty. And it was this sort of thing that led many previous philosophers to develop these armchair theories where they thought that they could prove the way you would prove in math, the truths about the physical world. And Bacon and his followers thought that this was a fundamental mistake that had hindered the progress of our understanding of the universe. That in order to understand the universe, we have to accept and embrace uncertainty and follow that experimental method follow that evidence, even though it never leads to certainty. Because when we think we've achieved certainty and we end our inquiry, we block our progress. And so the aim of the Baconian scientific method is to make the uncertainty clear and explicit so we know how confident we should be and we leave room for, for, for future scientists to improve on our results. The second item I want to mention is from the philosophy of John Locke. John Locke, late 17th century philosopher, also associated with the Royal Society, is known for two things. Uh, a great big book called An Essay Concerning Human Understanding about the theory of human knowledge, and a collection of political writings whose key theme is individual rights and especially religious toleration. And Locke's account of religious freedom continues to be enormously influential in Western Europe and North America today. Recent scholarship sees these two projects of Locke's, the analysis of human knowledge and the advocacy for religious toleration as intimately connected. Because Locke believes that claims to certainty in religion are the foundation of religious persecution. And here I note that I'm echoing Siobhan. Um, 
Vlock thinks that it's because people think that they have absolute certainty that their religion is right and everyone else is wrong, that that's what makes them go out and try to impose it by force. And he would apply the same thing to all sorts of other beliefs. And so according to Locke, when we embrace our uncertainty and we recognize that these religious questions are as, as difficult as they are important, and that everyone is doing the best they can to believe reasonably, that then we can approach one another with mutual respect and toleration and try to learn from one another instead of trying to impose our views by force. And I want to conclude with one kind of idea that I think both of these have in common. And that is that the embrace of uncertainty doesn't lead to a lazy relativism. That is, we don't say, because we can't be certain, therefore every belief is as good as every other. Embracing uncertainty is about trying to believe as reasonably as we can, evaluating the evidence and evaluating the arguments, and constantly trying to improve our beliefs. But embracing uncertainty means that we never think we've reached the end of our inquiry. There are always still questions to be asked, and it's always still possible for my beliefs to become better, more reasonable, and better supported by more evidence. And that means that I always have something left to learn from those who disagree with me. Thank you. It was a very, very insightful talks by Siobhan and Kenny. So uh, I'll give you a neuroscientist's uh, point of view on, um, on, on uncertainty. So if we lived at the time of the ancient Greeks that were referred to by Kenny, uh, we would not be certain about many of the things that we are certain about today. And this is not because we are biologically different. Uh, human beings uh, 3,000 years ago are biologically the same as they are now. If uh, one of them were to be thawed out as a frozen embryo today, they would behave exactly like us and have our beliefs. So the reason why we have particular, why we are certain about specific things is because of our past experience and because of what brains do with that experience. So essentially our brains record memories of our past events and use them to predict the future. So, there are many kinds of memories. Some of them are memories of specific details, such as, for instance, you may see a robin, a bird, a, a European robin, which has a nice orange breast, a small little bird with a, with a light brown back, and you know it's a robin and it sings beautifully. You may see another bird, which is a jackdaw, and the jackdaw is gray and black and has little blue-gray eyes. But what's interesting about it is you know these details, but at the same time, the brain extracts gists or key features of these birds. It has beak, it has feathers. And so by extracting these gists, it creates a category called the bird. And these categories now allow you to generalize. If you were to see a trogon in Mexico or Costa Rica, you would know it was a bird without ever having seen it before. And so you can now infer that it's a bird and because it has the, looks like a robin and a jackdaw in a certain essential features, 
You can infer that it probably flies, nests in trees, and it lays eggs. So this is a, a form of memory, which is called a, a schematic memory, uh, which by the way, we don't understand as neuroscientists, and how gists are extracted, categories are made, and schemas formed is, is a frontier area in neuroscience, but we know they exist. And we know they exist because neuroscientists have developed many tests for schematic memories. So you can already see that schema are very useful because they allow you to generalize and predict and understand things you've never seen before. But some of the tests for schematic memories are particularly insightful. Uh, you can have a, an individual learn a group of words such as slope, reindeer, sleigh, and flake on one day. And the next day you ask them, which words were in the list that you heard yesterday? And you can give them a list that includes corn, duck, snow, and ski. And very often they'll tell you, oh, snow and ski were part of the words of the previous day. But of course they weren't. You had slope, reindeer, sleigh, and flake, which were in the same category as these, but they would remember that snow and ski were actually in her the previous day. So what this shows you is that schema activation, that is the use of schema, results in false memories. So it also creates a certain amount of, of problems um, in terms of your recognition of detail and the truth. So it influences perception as well as memory formation. So if you have very active schema and expectations, uh, dissonant information is suppressed and you're much more likely to hear and think, hear and see things that fit with your past knowledge. So what's interesting here is that one of the things that neuroscientists, human neuroscientists in particular do, is they collect uh, subjects who have had strokes and so have uh, lesions in parts of their brains. And so one set of studies were done on people who were, uh, had strokes and were deficient in parts of a brain called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which is right in the front of your head here. And what they found is that in the same tests uh, with snow and ski, the people lacking ventromedial prefrontal cortex function were much less likely to make the errors. They could actually see the truth and were much light and, and didn't make the errors that involved from schema activation. So this is, uh, so if you were, if I could descend a little bit into neuroscience terms, uh, there's a part of the brain called the medial prefrontal cortex or the ventromedial prefrontal cortex where schema appears to be activated. And what it does is it suppresses novelty signals, things that appear new and are not congruent with the schema, normally give you novelty signals in a part of the brain called the hippocampus. And schemas suppress novelty signals in the hippocampus. And people with uh, defective prefrontal cortices show enhanced hippocampal responses, and that's why they see and remember things as they really are. So the same effect of uh, lacking a prefrontal, of this, of, of lacking the ventromedial prefrontal cortex can also be achieved most likely when we are being attentive and creative. So in these internally generated states, uh, schema activation can be suppressed. And so hippocampal activity is elevated and our perceptions and reasoning are now more accurate, more consistent with what's really out in the world and also less constrained by rules and by past knowledge. Okay, so we have talked mainly about uh, object schema, but there are other classes of schema, such as action schemas. So for instance, on normal working day, while every day is different in detail, many of the features are schematically similar. We may get up and have a shower, walk or drive to work, pick up a coffee at the friendly shop, and you know, depending on the kind of work you do, you go to your desk or you 
you go to your construction site, um, and you go ahead with, you know, certain, but, but now with the details of the work. So these indefinite, uh, these definite and invariant features are sort of predictable anchors of your working day. But if the anchors break, the coffee shop is closed, you have to work from home, you're now in unpredictable and uncertain terrain. So for many in the world, the current uncertainty, you know, threatens basic physiological needs. That is food, shelter, health, uh, access to your friends and family. And for these, it's close to impossible to avoid anxiety. There are others in the world who live with so much uncertainty already that the uncertainty that comes from a new crisis, such as the COVID crisis, is, is actually not very significant, uh, considering the uncertainties they normally deal with already. But for others who have freedom from real need, I mean, it's possible that coming unmoored from our past uncertainties, past certainties, you know, offers us an opportunity to engage freshly with aspects of the world we have ignored and to allow us to engage creatively and imaginatively with unexpected novel situations. So the take home points here would be that, you know, we rely on schematic memory to make models of the future. We have object schema, we have action schema, and uh, to be, to riff on Siobhan's and, and, and Kenny's talks before, we also have cultural and tribal schemas that form, which are based not only on our individual experiences, but also experiences of society and historical and cultural narrative that we absorb through our times, which also make us have models for behavior of others that we interact with. So schema allow efficiency, particularly in stable situations, but they limit our ability to appreciate novelty. In some contexts of a practice, uh, perhaps even religious practice, volitional control of our brains is possible that allows us to work in less schema-reliant, more realistic, and more creative fashions. Good evening. Well, after listening to Manny's talk, I, I think all my sources now need to have defective prefrontal cortexes. Um, thank you so much for inviting me to participate in tonight's talk. Um, it's actually been really instructive to reflect on what this age of uncertainty you know, means for journalists such as myself, because there really has been no time this year for reflection at all. And it's, it's probably a good time to take stock because we're entering into, I have to say, probably the most uncertain period the world um, has experienced, certainly in my lifetime. You know, if you think about it, we're heading into a, you know, a US election where um, we've got a global pandemic raging. We have a president who uh, is, you know, has got a, an infectious disease and, uh, and also has not committed to a peaceful transition of power. So it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's unprecedented, really. And of course, I've, I didn't even mention Brexit, which was also going to kick in fully at the end of this year. Um, before I maybe I get into explaining how we produce news in this age of uncertainty, uh, let me start by explaining Reuters role in the, in the news ecosystem. You know, what we do, the challenges that we face and, and how we deal with them. So we're the world's largest international news agency. We've got about two and a half thousand journalists in 200 locations around the world. And we have two major audiences. We have the financial markets who buy our data and our stories, and we have media clients who buy our, our pictures and our video and our text. So very often, if you were watching your state broadcaster producing a, a new segment from Afghanistan or, or Sierra Leone, 
it's a very high chance that video and the script that the journalist is reading from come from Reuters. So we, we, our heritage stretches back, you know, 165 years. We pride ourselves on being first with the news from the assassination of President Lincoln to Britain's, you know, voting to leave the European Union in 2016. So, you know, as journalists, we've always had to deal with uncertainty. You know, frankly, it's our, our, it's our stock in trade. I think if we all knew what was going to happen next, we'd just stick to the cat videos and the soap operas. Uh, and certainly in Reuters' long history, you know, we've always had to deal with propaganda and misinformation, whether it be from governments and military or from corporate spin doctors. But I do think what's happening right now for journalists is unprecedented. Um, this is arguably the biggest story we've had since the Second World War. There, there isn't a country on earth which hasn't been affected by this virus, and it's completely upended how we report on and produce the news. And it's been like catnip for conspiracy theorists and, and purveyors of, of misinformation online. So operationally, everything has been turned on its head for us. Um, our reporters and editors, with the exception of a few TV colleagues, are working almost entirely from home. Now, if you'd said to me last year that I'd be you know, publishing market-moving headlines and stories from the corner of my bedroom, I, I would have said you were mad, but here we are with, with the ugly curtains in the background, and it's actually working pretty well. Our, our customers are, really none the wiser that we're all working from home. Um, of course, it's easy for old time sort of editors and journalists like myself. It's much harder if you can imagine starting out on a, a beat right now as a journalist, you really need to meet people to develop sources. And that really isn't an option right now. And, and also more generally for journalists, if you're trying to break sensitive stories, not being able to meet people makes things very tricky. Sources will usually give more information in person than they will over the phone or you know, via email when their organization can be monitoring what they communicate. And I think psychologically, things are also difficult. Um, you know, we're, we're used to reporting on dangerous situations, whether it be natural disasters or, or riots or, or war. But here the danger, it's everywhere. It you know, comes home with you, it's invisible, and it's affecting your family and your friends. Some reporters have actually said to me that they you know, they felt safer working in war zones than in places like the White House or, or Westminster because not all officials are wearing face masks and they're not all social distancing. We're also in the situation where, you know, it's psychologically different, difficult, but there's also a huge demand for news um, and it's affecting every facet of the type of news that we produce. So our coverage of politics, society, business and sport. So I suppose, you know, in a way that's good news, right? You know, there's, there's a demand for news. The problem, of course, is that the media business, the media business writ large, is suffering from declining ad revenue. So you are seeing people, you know, and, and organisations shed staff. Um, the crisis has also amplified the problem of misinformation and rumour. Uh, research carried out by the Reuters Institute at Oxford University showed that most people um, are using social media, search engines, video sites, and messaging apps to get news about the virus. One in three said that the media had exaggerated. The, the pandemic, and one in four believed incorrectly that the virus had been made in a lab. So, you know, even when news broke last week about President Trump contracting COVID, um, I had friends and family ask me if it was even true. Uh, and of course, you know, Trump himself has contributed to this climate of mistrust and, and misinformation. Um, political spin, of course, is, is part of politics in any country, and as a journalist, your job is to sift through it. But White, White House reporters are having to constantly question you know, the factual basis for Trump's statements. And honestly, the risk in covering them is that you start to become immune to it. That's the danger that it becomes the everyday. 
And I, I said earlier that, you know, journalists have always had to deal with propaganda and misinformation, but the reach and speed of social media means that lies online can be spread so much more quickly and widely. There's also now the, the issue of deep fakes, which use you know, artificial intelligence to make credible, convincing online photos and audio, and that's been used to, to corrupt content. So Reuters did a, did a very good story actually over the summer about a freelance journalist who wrote articles in several Israeli newspapers, but the guy didn't actually exist. Um, and that's you know, chilling in a world where, you know, for budgetary reasons, a lot of media outlets are relying on freelancers rather than staff journalists and are maybe making those connections online uh, or over the phone. So how do we handle this, this tidal wave of news and, and the misinformation and, and the health threats? Well, we are lucky at Reuters in that we have some fundamental principles which have always infused our reporting and have helped us to navigate uncertain times. Um, we're committed to being first with the news, but accuracy always beats speed. So we want to be first, but we have to be right. Um, we are meant to report with integrity and independence and freedom from bias. And, and what that means in practice is, is that our stories have to be balanced. So we have to seek comment from everyone who's named in the story. We disclose the holes in our story. So we acknowledge what we were not able to uncover. And we try to keep the use of anonymous sources to a minimum, um, which is difficult when you've got places like the White House where officials always want to be quoted off the record. So I think these principles stand us in good stead at a time when, when people are seeking a trusted, reliable source of information. We also try to ensure that our outside experts really know what they're talking about. And if they've got an ax to grind, we, we disclose that. We're also very, very lucky that we have expert health and science journalists on our team. And, and we've really lent, lent on those people to ensure our reporting is, is clear, but also insightful. And we have editors and, and journalists who've experienced covering highly infectious diseases such as Ebola, and SARS and bird flu, and we, we've tapped into that expertise. And we're also just simply careful about the language that we use, right? You know, you've got to ask yourself, if this was a story about a family member, would you find it fair? Um, the volume of news has, of course, jumped, but we've, we've been able to prioritize, I think, the most important stories, and, and we've managed to maintain a team spirit. Um, and the technology has helped. You know, we have open mic calls in our editing desks, so we're in constant communication, and regular team chats as, as well as video calls. So I'm, I'm hopeful that this crisis provides something of a renaissance for credible news outlets um, and that we as journalists learn from it. Um, you know, we need to ask pretty deep questions and learn fast about things that we knew nothing about. So over to you now, Eve. Thank you very much, Carmel, and uh, my goodness, for very diverse responses to our theme this evening of the age of uncertainty uh, in relation not only to the pandemic, but also, of course, as you've all touched on, all the other factors that are going on in the backgrounds of our lives at present that contribute to this climate. We have, as you uh, might have expected, a flood of questions coming in from our online audience. I'm going to go to those in a minute, but perhaps I can uh, um, exploit my position as, as chair of this session just to ask you all, uh, and maybe this is a, a, a very personal question, but to ask you all to, to maybe say something about how the current uncertainty in relation to the pandemic in particular has shifted the way that you work. And I don't necessarily mean in the physical sense of shifting uh, to working from home, but has it changed your priorities in terms of what you're researching, uh, or in terms of the way you perhaps think about your students, or for you, Carmel, um, has it changed the way you think about yourself as 
a news journalist. And, and your own confidence in the kind of news that Reuters produces in a situation where, as you've said, uh, we are living in a tolerated landscape of rumour and misinformation. So what has changed for all of you in relation to the uncertainty of, of the current time and how this affects your own work? Uh, you don't have to be too personal, but I wonder, maybe, uh, maybe we go to you, Siobhan, first. Any, any thoughts on that? Um, thanks for the question, Eve. I haven't obviously had time to give um, much meditation to it, but two things immediately came into mind, as you mentioned it. The first is, cons is concern for students. How, as a head of school, are you going to allow, uh, en enable, not allow, enable um, your students to have the sort of experience that you're used to thinking of as being necessary and formational and um, educative uh, while working entirely through a screen. How do you cat? Because so much of um, modern pedagogy is rightly about inclusion. And if you only have one medium and you're not able to pick up on all those somatic cues, how do you know how to bring in or bring out or create other mechanisms for the, um, the student who's not able to fully engage in this one way? So it's a, it's a huge learning about the technology it seems to be the learning, but actually it's how do you reach the students in all their different learning needs and all of their different stages of life and all that's going on with them, all that you normally can pick up in the classroom and what they say and in how they act. Um, I haven't yet um, uh, developed any techniques I could share in this forum, but it's, it's the most immediately pressing question. And then the second biggest change is just my body hurts sitting here. It's normally you'd be up, you'd be going to a meeting, you'd be crossing campus, you'd be going to the library, you'd be hopefully maybe having dinner with somebody. If you were lucky enough, you'd be up, down, all around. And now I'm just on a chair all day long and it hurts. And I think that's the second uh, biggest change is just the physical reality of living this way and again I'm in the early stages of adjusting to it. I'm glad I'm not the only one suffering uh, that uh, discomfort Siobhan. Mm. Uh, Kenny could I come to you and, and put the same question to you? Uh, perhaps your research priorities have changed, perhaps something's come into view as a result of the uncertainty we're living in. Um, sure, um, I mean, the most obvious answer to, to how my work has changed is not perhaps the most interesting one. It's that I, I became a head of department in the middle of all of this chaos and spend all of my time dealing with it. But um, I'm far from the only one who's been thrown into chaos. And um, I think that something that's affected me is the extent to which uh, the ability from time to time to actually stop and contemplate to, to read these these books and do the kind of philosophical work that I normally do um, begins to feel like a luxury, right? And it, uh, one that I'm grateful for. And it also, um, it also does feel relevant. Um, 
something that I, a project that I just um, sort of uh, finished and sent off uh, not very long ago in the midst of thinking about all this uncertainty is on uh, two early modern women philosophers, uh, Mary Astle and Damaris Cudworth Masham, and their accounts of epistemic authority. Epistemic authority is a person's right to be believed. And so the, the question is, when we hear these people telling us things, uh, should, we, should we believe them? Should we take them at their word on their say-so? And normally we recognize this when people are, say, reporting events in their lives or whatever. But what about someone claiming to be an expert on the pandemic, say? Um, Mary Austell has very interesting arguments for the claim that someone could have epistemic authority on the basis of occupying an institutional position. So she would think that the very fact that a person is head of your country's CDC could be a reason for believing what that person says, quite independent of any evidence that you might have about their expertise. Uh, Damaris Masham thinks that this approach is nonsense, that it is kind of giving up our right to think for ourselves. And that doesn't mean we never trust what people tell us, but it means we look at the evidence around every source and we say, whether they're, whether they're government or private or some random person on the street, what's the likelihood that this person knows what they're talking about and what's the likelihood that they're lying? And the, you know, this kind of critical evaluation for someone like Masham has to be uh, applied to absolutely everyone. Uh, so that's a kind of project that, uh, that I've been working on recently that took on some extra relevance yeah. in light of the pandemic and all of the questions about who to believe. Thank you, Kenny. And, and Manny, I mean, you, you elaborated on, on the schema and the brain's functioning uh, and began to suggest, I think, there is a creative um, aspect to this. When certain things in the brain relax, that it, it does create this space uh, that uh, could profit from uncertainty. But has that been something that you've found personally as your uh, familiar world has dropped away and been replaced by the strangeness that we're all dealing with? No, I think that I think that the creative. I think that um, you know, as a as, as a as a scientist, and otherwise, I think that uh, the when you're really functioning, where you are working on specific projects, and the projects have gained momentum, and you are trying to make um, you know certain uh, reach certain conclusions and demonstrate conclusions that you're already ninety percent sure are true, you're sort of operating in a way that's not terribly creative. You're using rules, you're using logic, you're working with them. It's very efficient, but it's workmanlike and like a carpenter, you're getting things done. But there are periods where you are much more creative, where you see things that are different and you try to explain things you don't understand. So I do know that there are different modes in which you work. So I don't work on schema at all. And so this concept of schema, for instance, came out of some discussions which we had during this gap really, where we are thinking about uh, you know, neurohumanities. I was thinking, how, how can we as neuroscientists, you know, help understand or contribute to, uh, you know, all of these uh, major cultural divisions that exist? What is the real origin of these cultural divisions and culture conflicts? Is there a way in which you can do it? 
So uh, the concept of schema, which really is not terribly new, the first definition of schema was by someone named Fred Bartlett in 1932, who talked about it in concept of culture, but he's a psychologist. But uh, the idea that you could actually come to a neuroscience of it, and it's not, I found it particularly pleasing from, our point of, from my point of view, because it, it doesn't actually say one side is right or the other side is, or the other side is right. The idea is that everyone is, is, is that people develop schemas based on their own social and, um, and, and, and personal experiences. And there's a certain, there's a certain desire and comfort uh, by being around people who share the same schema. But so that's a common view of from one side and the other. And so if we are aware of this and realize that, you know, under, under places, under situations where contextually you are not stressed, but you are calm, it's possible then that you can be more creative and engaged with other points of view, with things that are surprising. And so some of the things that drive creative science can also then allow us to drive creative and new engagement with, with, with things you don't expect. And, and obviously, I mean, some of the questions I can see coming up touch on, on uh, the stress and anxiety that relate to uncertainty that, that may inhibit this kind of creativity. So we may well come back to that. But, but let me put the same question to Carmel, perhaps from a slightly different angle, Carmel, because uh, in talking about the news horizon or the news landscape, uh, obviously we're dealing with different sources of news um, with different uh, formats in which news is now absorbed and, and selected by people across the world. But can we still be certain of a kind of news hierarchy where old traditional news organizations such as Reuters can be seen as having a certain certainty in the news they're giving us? Or are they just now in a, in a kind of free fall that journalism has had to negotiate and deal with? And you'll need to unmute Carmel. Yeah, I think, you know, hopefully you, you could say that certain organizations, you can, you know, rely on them to be, to be credible, but will, will many people pay any attention to them if they're, you know, too busy getting their news from, you know, YouTube videos um, or from messaging WhatsApp groups? You know, that's, that's the, the problem that we face, you know, even in, in the run-up to the last U.S. election, there were plenty of news stories out there about um, Trump and the, you know, the realities of his business empire and how he conducted business. And yet many people in the U.S. firmly believe that he was self-made, you know, self-made millionaire, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, that's, I suppose, maybe the, the sort of slightly depressing thing that there is a body of work out there, but are people reading it or, or, or paying attention, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it relates to another question I want to move on to now, which is um, coming in. Uh, it's in relation to a question that's come in from Giovanna Lima. Um, and uh, she's putting it to, to you, Siobhan. Uh, and it's about religious ritual and how this perhaps gives us uh, um, certainty in the, in the situation of the pandemic, how we perhaps create and uh, intensify our ritual practices in situations of uncertainty. But I suppose I might ask a couple of you the same question because uh, watching the news, listening to the news, um, used to be uh, a very well-established ritual in daily life that you turn on the news at six o'clock in the evening. And of course, we've lost that kind of ritual aspect of the news 
Carmel. So we might come back to you to talk about that. But maybe Siobhan, I can ask you that question first from Giovanna. Um, can you tell us a little bit more? You did touch on ritual. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how you see its role in relation to the current crisis? Well, uh, thanks to Giovanna for the for the question, um, because it's been one of the most um, uh, important um, aspects of uh, the pandemic for so many people, not just those of us who study ritual, but um, and I'll talk about religious ritual and um, there's lots you could talk about on this subject, but I'll just try and stick to Ireland. So if you think of how important um, the right the um, rituals around death and dying were in Ireland um, and how they have been um, uh, so profoundly affected uh, both in terms of the care of people who are in hospital, which is not where the majority of people who used to die in Ireland used to die, to the fact you can't visit people who are in hospital, the fact more people are dying in hospital, to the fact you can't have the gatherings. We couldn't for a long time um, have any more than um, initially 10 people in a church for a funeral, whereas there might previously have been hundreds, even thousands. Um, and what has not come as a surprise, um, but may, is, is going to be very important to study what's at play, is how people have adjusted. And you'll see now, in, whereas hundreds of people would have gone to the house the night before, and many hundreds of people would have gone to the church and the morning of the funeral and to the grave after the funeral, um, you now have people lining um, the road, socially distanced um, for when the body's taken in and people lining the road from the church to the graveyard so that people can bear witness to their friends, neighbours, family in their loss, but within whatever resources are available to them. And it's very moving to see. And my um, interest there would be in the fact that people have been formed as ritual agents. You can look at Irish Catholics and say, well, they're just doing the same old things by rote. It's not true. People have extraordinary somatic and spiritual vocabularies at their fingertips that can adjust, can adjust almost overnight if necessary. And we're seeing the outworking, not of now we need to do this where we used to do that. We're seeing what's often misunderstood, which is that if you're formed in religious practices, then you become a ritual agent by being so formed and you can apply your senses and your body and your words to alter that. Um, another example is the fact that people can go to mass wherever they like on a Sunday morning. You don't have to go to the priest you don't like. You can go wherever you like. And that's brought joy to many people and pain to others who like going where they want to go, but they um, can still do something. People are adjusting and it's grown in the way that prayers get brought into the ritual leadership, even though the people aren't there, it's evolving. Um, and before I sound like I'm too uh, positivistic about this, <laughs> um, 
if I can riff off, if I understood what Marnie said, you know, we're at our best when we're being attentive and creative and not just following rules or working off past knowledge. And I think ritual allows people to do that without necessarily knowing what they're doing. Mm. But then you can come up against absolute limit factors where you can't, you can't, no matter how attentive or creative you are, you can't, or we haven't yet figured it out. And the, the prime example um, in terms of religious ritual at the moment, as Giovanna maybe knows, is singing. I mean, it's just exposed how many people go to church mostly to sing or to hear the singing. And communal singing is the thing we cannot do. And it obviously everyone will have seen people doing things by Zoom and a garage band, and that's fantastic that people are trying, but it doesn't have anything like the effect of having the vibrations of other people entering your body because you're singing in relative yeah. close proximity to them. Um, so that's, that's, we've just not found a way through that bodily limit factor in place of the pandemic yet. So then, I'm interested to hear you talk about singing in particular, because I know our own Institute of Neuroscience has been very interested in the neurological benefits of singing generally. But of course, this is heightened uh, at a time when we're cut off um, from other people and another guard, I think, against the, the kind of free fall of uncertainty. But I wonder if I can put the same question about ritual back to you, Carmel, because one of the things we've seen, in addition to I suppose all the secular rituals that have emerged, whether it's clapping for carers or something like that, we also see a very ritualized format entering into the news at times like this, don't we? I'm thinking, for example, of the, the evening press briefings, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the two medical scientists who must flank uh, the prime minister, for example, if it's the UK news, or again, uh, the White House briefings and how they operate in a kind of ritualistic way at times like this. And of course, more generally. But I wonder if you feel that the news itself um, performs in a kind of ritualistic way at times, even though it's dealing with constant unpredictability. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, there, you, you still have your daily, your daily news, right? Your, your, your um, end of day deadline to get the story out for the next day. And yes, you can update the story as it goes along, but you still have those sort of, those deadlines that they still, they still very much persist. Um, no, I think that's, I think that's true. And I think, I, I do think, you know, in a way the, the news was always ritualistic, you know, even in, here in Ireland, the, um, Certain announcements were always catered to to the the six o'clock news um, or the nine o'clock news, and I, I suppose perhaps we're just seeing it more with you know these regular briefings with the medical professionals and, and the government. Um, I suppose the danger with them, in, in a way, is you you sort of end up you can't see the wood for the trees because you're so focused, perhaps as a media organisation, in covering these particular um, press briefings that maybe you're you're missing what's going on outside you you know we often say that the white house for instance you know you're close to the center of power but you're actually in a huge bubble and the real story might be outside so that's you know that's the danger actually with these ritualized press briefings yes exactly yes which can 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 in fact distance any kind of real news can't they yeah it is theater yeah. instead as i think uh, you were certainly suggesting earlier uh, we've lots more questions coming in but i, I want to take one from celine Tobois. 
And Celine is actually asking a question which is directed at, at you, Kenny. Um, but again, it's something I think we might expand. And she's asking about the West. Uh, the West, she says, as a term or a concept uh, or a representation of the part of the world seems to be obsolete. In the context of epistemological uncertainty, and this, of course, she says, you brilliantly exposed it, Kenny, how can that be reconfigured, uh, this concept of the West? I wonder if I could piggyback on that question to ask you, and, and perhaps we might go to other panelists as well, uh, if indeed there's also a perceptible difference in attitudes to living with uncertainty between traditional ideas of the West and what we might see in Eastern cultures, what we might see in other parts of the world. Are we very close to a particular democratic liberal tradition uh, that, that relies very heavily on, on certainty? Uh, and in fact, uh, we need to look at how other cultures, perhaps non-Western cultures, in fact, embrace this idea quite differently. Um, so Kenny, I'll, I'll challenge you with, uh, with that one first, if I may, um, from Celine. Sure. Um, so let me start by saying a little bit about how I use that term Western in my work as a historian of philosophy. Uh, I think that recent scholarship and recent attention has shown some of the limitations of that term and the narrative that accompanies it and the ways in which it can be limiting and hinder understanding of the history of philosophy and of different philosophical traditions. At the same time, I think that having some kind of label for this particular philosophical tradition or history that reaches back to ancient Greece is quite important as a way of recognizing that that's not all the philosophy there is or ever has been in the world. When it becomes misleading or problematic is when, well, one, if we attach too positive a valence to this term Western and we're starting to think that that means good somehow, that's one way it can be problematic. Another way it can be problematic is if we have too narrow a definition of what Western philosophy is. For instance, if the story you are telling uh, is the story of how we got from Socrates to Bertrand Russell, and you leave out classical Islamic philosophy, you are just getting the facts wrong. That Bertrand Russell doesn't happen if Ibn Sina doesn't happen. Um, and so that's another way in which it can be limiting. It can also be limiting if we think that each of the traditions is insular and not interacting with one another. And so what we want to understand is that there is a particular kind of cultural situatedness that we have and a particular kind of cultural background that we have that encompasses Western Europe, encompasses Euro-American people and Euro-Australian people, for instance, that have a, a common cultural heritage that is not the only one in the world and that can learn from other kind of um, cultural background. Now, it is often thought that that particular cultural heritage has particular epistemological presumptions. That seems very likely. And part of that may be this background of the obsession for certainty, of, with certainty that I was talking about, and especially the particular ways in which we want to achieve certainty. The model of Euclid's geometry as the prototype of knowledge. And we don't really know what we're talking about 
unless we have those firm, unquestionable axioms and can derive our conclusions from them. And so I'm very open to the notion that in learning how to embrace uncertainty, there may be uh, approaches that could be learned from other cultural traditions, both the kind of written transmission of philosophical traditions that we find in places like China and India, but also um, kind of traditional modes of thought that may not be part of literary traditions in other parts of the world. Um, that's a very big complex topic because there are so many possible cultures you might examine uh, and I am a little bit knowledgeable about some of them. Uh, so I, I wouldn't be able to go uh, on in great detail or at great length about that, but I think that it would be a, it's a very worthwhile project uh, to examine that and to learn from it. Definitely. And, and thank you, Kenny, for a very, a very full answer there. I think that um, uh, is, uh, with my apologies to Selena, uh, uh, follows on from the question that she raised. I know we've got lots of questions coming in. I want to come uh, to, to Manny, but again, other people may want to respond to this as well. Uh, it's a question that's come in from Carl Leonard. Uh, I think it's very interesting and it's about, uh, Carl is asking, the capacity for humans to cope with uncertainty. Is there a tendency to look at the short term and deal only with what's directly facing us at the moment? And does this in fact contribute to our intolerance towards uncertainty, our inability to think in longer temporal phases, our uh, increasingly short-term recognition or understanding of the world, something perhaps that uh, the endless news cycle that Carmel's been talking about might contribute to. But Manny, I wonder, is that, is that something you, you might want to talk to us a little bit about? The short-termism in thinking at the moment that's being exacerbated by the fact that we're waiting for the next news to see if we'll go to level five, uh, rather than thinking over a longer period of time, which of course is obscured by doubt and uncertainty in itself. I don't have anything very authoritative to say uh, as a neuroscientist, apart from agreeing. Um, I, do think that, I do think that one of the nice things that comes out of thinking long-term is that you, you, have, a, you have some perspective about, about the, uh, you know, how the world has changed, how opinions have changed, how different times have existed, and it gives one a sense of perspective that also gives you a flexibility in, in, in how you address a broader perspective of how you deal with, with, with the current, with, with what's now there. I also think it's a question of one's, I mean, just to fit it into what I think about, I also think it's a question of one's, uh, of one's experience. If one's experience with news and if one's experience with, uh, with life is essentially very small, intense periods going from one to the other to the other, there isn't enough time for really, you know, contemplation over a longer period of time. I mean, Growing up in India, I spent, you know, several hours walking around with a stick in a field, you know, I mean, on an afternoon. And so there's a different pace of life where you think in a, in, a, in a closer kind of way. So I guess I don't have very much to say apart from absolutely agreeing that longer perspectives, a knowledge of history, um, a knowledge of uh, an actual consideration of different times gives one a lot of perspective in, um, and, and there is, you know, at least a social psychology and psychology slash neuroscience explanation for that. 
Could you talk a little bit more about that? Because one of the things, of course, that we, we did when the, the pandemic started was to reach back into history and to look for analogies with the, the so-called Spanish flu, for example, uh, to look for things that we recognized, to try to do a landscape scanning, to find recognizable markers of that experience. Um, how, what does the brain actually want when it, it engages in that process of looking for something that it recognizes, of looking for something that's familiar in order to take away the strangeness of the current situation? Um, I, I can't, again, I can't answer this with, with any authority, but I absolutely think that there's a certain amount of personal security, which is to say that you're, you, are, you are not subjected to social humiliation, which all the way back from, you know, from small animals to humans is a terrible thing. And also you're not subject to fear or deprivation. And so there's a certain desire for a belief that allows you to stay positive in your, and so that's, there's a motivation internally to have positive beliefs. And so I think that sadly, that the vast majority of human, the vast majority of, 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 of humans and animals that which we are like to come to a conclusion that allows us to, to stick with a narrative and belief that reflects best on our current and future condition. And I think the ability to sort of step back and uh, really consider the differences, I, do, I think people are not looking for a really considered answer so much as for comfort. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. So there's a kind of self-serving uh, aspect to our um, plundering of history for things that help us understand the present moment. Uh, I, I, can see, I can see that point, certainly. I, I want to come on to um, a topic that lots of people are asking questions about, and this is intolerance. And I think, uh, uh, Siobhan, certainly you kicked off with this, but a, a, a number of you have picked up on uh, intolerance as something that is uh, accompanying the, the pandemic and accompanying um, the current landscape of uncertainty uh, in very prevalent ways. But the question has been put by David Horgan, among other people. It's coming in on our Facebook stream. And David asks, does intolerance of alternative views, for example, on COVID-19, masks, on Trump or on Brexit, make it more difficult for us to anticipate and prepare for uncertain outcomes? So does our intolerance, our intolerance of different views um, make us, um, I suppose, poorly equipped to deal with things that are uncertain, to deal with outcomes that uh, go outside of our expectations? Um, Manny, I've got you on screen there, so I'm, I'm going to stick with you for that one first and then maybe pass it back to, to other people. Yeah, I, I, think there's no right. question that, I think there's no question that the answer is yes, because if you're intolerant, it means you have uh, an incredibly, incredibly strong certainty about something. And I think that the, if you are flexible and creative in one aspect of your life, it translates into others. So there's a certain mode that sets in, which, which prevents you from, uh, from being able to actually deal with uncertainty in other aspects of your life if you so closely demand certainty in this one area. And I think the polarization is really quite terrible because the more threat there is from others, the more you sort of descend into, the, the more, you know, the, the, the schema hardens. Thank you, Mani. I wonder, can we put the same question to, I think Siobhan, you, you began by looking at 
uh, uh, forms of intolerance in relation to the various groups we try to contain uh, and compromise within society. Um, I wonder if you might like to, to add anything to this question from, uh, um, from David Horgan. I'd only, only to, like Marnie to say yes. Um, but also to strike a cautious theory that it's not new, um, that there was never, there hasn't yet been a period when we're very good at um, negotiating difference, uh, different uh, opinion, different belief, different background. I mean, the whole colonial project, the whole sort of mode of being church, which is very imposing of, um, judgments on others. These are these these have long long histories. So there's a very um, uh, we need to look at how we structure engagement um, between human beings in democracies because it's masqueraded uh, for a long time as being completely democratic. That's what I was taught when I was in high school, and then you find well actually it's left. All these people out and these same societies have radically oppressed others through um, economic policy in more recent times and then with the history of colonization before that. We, we have yet to find I think the methods that we absolutely need for um, actually tolerating um, profound difference of perspective. There's two caveats to that. One is there are some things that just aren't true. Uh, all the rubbish that gets put up on the internet, a lot of the things that the President of the United States even <laughs> tweets. And we have to have a way of saying that's not true without being intolerant of people who, for one reason or another, are saying those things. And that's very difficult. The first bit is very difficult, as I said. This, this is then an important caveat. Um, and secondly, it's just not fair to blame the echo chamber of modern social media for this problem. Um, and focusing on that isn't going to help us solve it. There's a huge question about discourse that we as civic societies need to address. Thanks, Siobhan. And of course, it's one of the things we, we think about on a daily basis in the Trinity Long Room Hub is how we participate in this question of addressing the degradation of our public sphere and our civic sphere. Um, and we are, after all, educationalists. And this brings me to a question, I suppose, for you, Carmel. It, it's come in um, from Rory Mailer. Again, it's from our Facebook stream. Lots of questions coming in on Facebook. A question to Carmel. Um, do you think that post-COVID there needs to be a greater emphasis on teaching the news-consuming public how to interpret information in order to safely democratise the news and deal with the modern information flood? Do we need, a, I think uh, Rory is, is asking there in a very eloquent way, do we need educational structures so that people actually learn how to discriminate uh, between different kinds of news, how to interpret the information they've been given, um, I wonder what thoughts you have on this, because after all, news is news. It's an information service that Reuters provides. Do you feel you also have an attendant responsibility to educate the public in how to consume, how to register the information that you're giving them? 
Yes, definitely. Without a doubt. And actually, I think it goes beyond just the media. I think as parents, as, as educators, um, we need to um, you know, explain to people about how the media works in the same way that you would you know, tell your children, you know, don't eat too, you know, don't eat too much of that particular type of food. It's bad for you. I mean, you need to explain to people that some of the stuff that they're seeing online is, is, is just hatred. Um, there's that. And then there's also other forms of content, which it's just opinion. It's not actual news. Um, and you know, there's a huge, you know, the 24 hour news cycle, the, the 24 hour breaking news channels. I mean, they rely so much on, as we've seen is, you know, opinions. Um, from people who a lot of the time don't really know what they're talking about, um, particularly in a, in a, in a health, a health crisis. So absolutely a, a resolute. Yes. Um, and you know, it would be great. You should teach children how to read the news, you know, um, you know, talk about, well, you know, do you, do you want your, this, 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 um, story doesn't seem to have any sources where are they getting their, you know, their, their, what is the basis for this news story? Is the, is the, is the person that they're quoting, is it a named person? Why are they relying all, you know, always on anonymous sources? That sort of thing would be great because perhaps then there would be pushback from the news consuming public on the growing use of anonymous sources across large swathes of the media. It's, you know, the irony is the, you know, the population of PRs has never been greater, but yet they are increasingly anonymous. Um, and that's, that's ridiculous. You know, you're paid to, 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 to give, you know, to speak, to give, to give your side and then put your name to it. So yeah, an absolute yes. I, I think it should be taught in, in the edu you know, in, in schools, frankly. I think it probably already is, but we, we need to do it better and, and continue that yeah. education, certainly. Um, so I'm, I'm really, I'm encouraged to hear you talk about this. Um, and it, it brings us to another news-related question. If I can stay with you for a second, Carmel, but it's um, a question that's come in from Tim Stott in, in Art History in Trinity, uh, who says it's a fascinating and timely panel. Thank you, Tim. Um, a question for anyone, but I'll stick with you, Carmel. How might we negotiate political uses of uncertainty? For example, uh, the political undermining of the science of climate change uh, by uh, by looking at uh, particular um, I'm just looking by looking at particular models. Um, this this sense that there is a uh, contingent within our society that's ready to utilize and exploit public uncertainty is one of the most sinister aspects, I think, of this topic that we're discussing for me. Um, Carmel, you must see this uh, on a daily basis, trying to negotiate the news field. How, how attuned do you have to be um, to the various groups within society who are opportunists, who are looking to prey on public fears, anxieties, uncertainties, in order to push a particular news narrative? That, I'm, that, I'm afraid that's a huge question, but yeah, no, I, I think you, you, as a reporter, you should always be vigilant, but I think even more so now, just with the way that, um, you know, technology has changed things, for instance, like, I, I you know, I, I don't think, you know, as humans, we've, we've changed so much over, over the, the millennia, but I think, you know, the kind of the means with which we can communicate have. And so, you know, to the point I raised earlier about, you know, several Israeli newspapers um, published um, articles, you know, opinion pieces by a person who didn't exist. I mean, that's, that's terrifying, right? So that's, you know, uh, that's one example of how you have to be vigilant as an editor. This person who's emailed you or called you up with an idea for a story, do they even exist? Maybe you should meet them in person, right? So sort of basic um, 
things that I suppose we didn't even have to think about maybe in the, in the 20th century are, are now suddenly posed as challenges for us. And so as newsrooms, I think we have to constantly, I don't know that we can ever necessarily stay a step ahead, but at least, you know, look at, um, learn from the mistakes of ourselves and others and, and learn from them. Um, so yes, you have to be hyper vigilant. I, I'm, we're, when we have so many questions coming in and we've time for a really quick response to this one. And it could just be a one-liner from a couple of you um, to close. And this is from Mary Hoare. Uh, how can we effectively and efficiently navigate this uncertainty while maining a semblance of sanity and self? What keeps us sane um, in, uh, in this uncertain world? Is there a, a one-line answer, I wonder, either from a personal perspective or a professional view Manny, from you, perhaps on this, what keeps you sane? I, I think it's, it's a great question, but I think that the the sense of self is tremendously important. Uh, but I think that the self of se the sense of self has to expand. Um, so one of the things that happens as one grows as children is you initially you, you develop a sense of self based on all of the experiences that you've really had, and then you this hardens as you grow older because more and more things you can predict. I would say that with uncertainty and also with new experiences, one has to, to use the language of uh, Jean Piaget from a long time ago. You have to both uh, assimilate and accommodate this new information and expand your sense of self in order to ride and uh, fit with the uncertainty. Beautiful answer. And I, I think much as I would like to uh, elaborate on this, uh, we are uh, running close to the end of, of this session. Uh, we've really had some terrific uh, um, developments, I think, on this theme of uncertainty, but clearly from the various angles that you've covered, from philosophy, uh, from religion, from thinking about the news, from the brain and neuroscience, we've only begun to touch uh, at the surface of, of a very complex subject. Um, we are then uh, forced to come to a close, and I apologize to all the people who've sent in quite brilliant and, and really interesting questions. We just don't have time to get to you all, but uh, we've seen them all, and uh, thank you very much for, uh, for putting them into us. Um, so we, we will now have to move to a close, uh, but don't despair. Uh, the one thing you can be certain of, of course, is that there will be much more to come from the Trinity Longroom Hub uh, as we move through the new academic year. Uh, and I want to flag, first of all, that uh, you might want to join us again on Thursday evening, this Thursday, the 8th of October at seven o'clock. Uh, we're going to be running a panel discussion uh, on global white nationalism from apartheid to Trump. Global white nationalism from apartheid to Trump. And I am fully expecting that that will pick up on some of the themes that a couple of the panelists uh, have raised uh, already this evening. You can find information on that and registration uh, either through the Trinity Longroom Hub website as usual, uh, but you can also see it uh, in the chat function on your screens if you're interested. Uh, I also want to say that you can begin to look forward to the next Behind the Headlines panel. It's going to take place on October the 29th, 29th of October, so that's just before, just a few days before the US election. Um, and we'll be asking the question, is there still an American dream? Is there still an American dream? We're gonna have a terrific panel lined up to, to tackle that uh, topic. And details of that will be available very shortly on the website. And if you go to the Trinity Longroom Hub website, you'll see that there are, uh, there's a huge number of events, 
seminars, showcases that are open to the public and uh, we hope that you'll, you'll join us for those. Before we close, I would like to thank our panelists very warmly indeed for their insight and their expertise and also for giving up their time this evening because I know you were all very busy people. Uh, Siobhan Garrigan, Kenny Pierce, Mani Ramaswamy and Carmel Crimmins. Thank you again to our supporters and particularly the John Pollard Foundation. Also my thanks to the Trinity Longroom Hub team, our brilliant technical team, especially Aoife King and Francis O'Rafferty, who've been a tremendous help in setting this up. Most of all, I'd like to close by saying my thanks to all of you for joining us here at the Trinity Long Room Hub online. It's been a real pleasure to have you with us. Good night. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history to of the Taimoria Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.